Welcome to Crossroads and Cauldrons. We are two witches with jobs, families, and busy lives just like you. We talk about weaving the web of community, practicing magic, and life in the Deep South. everybody and welcome to the show. You're listening to Crossroads and Cauldrons podcast. I'm Selena and I have an incredible guest for you today. I'm so pleased to uh, bring to the show Mara Starling. Um, she's written a book called, um, I've got the full title here, Welsh Witchcraft, A Guide to Spirits, Lore and Magic of Wales. Isn't it beautiful? It's beautiful. Um, and so I'm very, very excited to speak with her. Um, She was born in North Wales, raised on the Isle of Anglesey, and she's a native Welsh speaker. I'm so excited to have you here. Welcome. Welcome to the show, Mara. How are you? I'm great, thank you. How are you doing today? And thank you for having me on as well. (laughs) Oh, no. I'm so excited that you're here. It's funny. I was was reading your book, and I had a friend visiting, and we were just chatting, and I was like, I'm reading this great book. You're going to love it. And I started talking about it. And she was like, wait a minute, are you, is it Welsh witchcraft? Is that what you're reading? And she was reading the same one and she was going to tell me all about it. So I thought it was just excellent uh, that we were both reading that at the same time. So I asked her if she, if she had any particular questions for you, for me to ask you. And she was, she was saying nothing in particular, but she's very interested in the witch's devil. So maybe that will come up later. I don't know. Um, But first, before we go off too far, tell us a little bit about your, your book, Welsh Witchcraft is so rooted in the traditions and the folklore of the land that you grew up on. So can you tell us what it was like growing up in Wales? Absolutely. I, I love talking about Wales. As you can tell, I wrote a whole book on it. You wrote a whole book. <laughs> but, um, I grew up in a really rural area, so I had a really privileged, um, I think, background in that I grew up in a very rural, back of the woods kind of area. It was on the coast. So I grew up in this beautiful landscape surrounded by the sea and the woods and the fields. And my entire playground growing up was this just immense nothingness, just nature. And it was absolutely beautiful. And back then I hated it. Back when I was young, I used to be like, I want to live in a city where there's like, you know, shops and cafes and things to do. But now looking back, I'm like, I was so lucky to have just the ability to roam free. I speak to people my age now and I'm like, um, they talk about how when they were young, they weren't even allowed, you know, to go past their street without like their parents' permission and stuff. And I was like, I could travel for miles along the coastline and my parents did not care because we lived in such a tight knit community that everybody knew everybody and everybody was looking out for each other. And it was also a Welsh speaking community. So we all spoke Welsh as our first language and um, Welsh was the language that I grew up with the most. And I didn't really start speaking English fully until probably like third year of high school when I started taking English at a higher level. Um, And so my English was terrible for so long. And I look back now, I've got some videos on social media where I speak English and I'm like, oh my goodness, my accent. (laughs) It's it's quite (laughs) strange um, looking back and reflecting. But I was always surrounded by magic as well. And magic was a core aspect of my upbringing, not in like a, um, you know, I wasn't raised by witches or anything, but magic was just intrinsically part of the culture that we grew up in. So I remember I went to school with, um, so we only had 26 students in the whole school. And um, it was all very kind of like, we were like siblings together. 
and the teachers didn't really follow a curriculum. They just did whatever they wanted with us. And so they took that opportunity because there were so few of us and we were all just bundled up together in this one room. We weren't separated by like year groups or classrooms or anything. It was just all together. They would take us on trips to the countryside where we would um, talk about like, oh, this is the myth of Branwen. So Branwen was a princess who lived in Harlech and she had a brother called Bendy Gaidvran who was a giant. And then one day she got married to the Irish king. And this, this spot that we're at right here is exactly where she got married. Or they'd take us on a trip to like um, a woods in the middle of nowhere and they'd be like, so this woodland leads to a little island on the coast as well. And that island is associated with Dwynwen, the patron saint of love. And she was uh, so surrounded by magic and by love. And she has quite a tragic story. And that mythology is rooted in this place right here. And that's what I, I remember the most from growing up was just how rooted the mythology that we grew up with was and the folklore as well. It wasn't just, you know, like these are bedtime stories of things happening long, long ago in realms far away. It was here. It was the land that I lived on. And I could like go out into the field behind my house and imagine like the Tulwith Teg, the fairies, or the wizards and witches and princesses and giants from our folklore and mythology coming to life. And I just absolutely loved it. So there's absolutely no wonder that I ended up walking down a more kind of witchy, magical path as I grew older. And I was fortunate enough to find amazing mentors, amazing people who guided me on the path and steered me towards a spirituality that was more Welsh in nature. Because when I first started, I was very much more interested in like Wicca and the idea of neo-paganism and such. And I was very much into like gods and goddesses from Greek myth or Egyptian myth. And then I met people like Christopher Hughes, who is the chief of the Anglesey Druid Order. And he introduced me to the gods of Wales. And I was like, I know these characters because we learned about them in school and I never thought about them as gods. And then I met um, another mentor called Julie, who was a witch, and she taught me the importance of going out into the, the country itself and, you know, not being, a, as she would say, not being a carpet witch, not doing everything on the floor of your apartment and instead going out <laughs> into the, the woods and things. And she was amazing. And yeah, so I was, I was really privileged to have all that. And when the time came that I said to Christopher, I really want to write a book, he was like, you need to do it and you need to write it like now and get it out there. And that all culminated in this. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad you did. And I love Christopher Hughes, by the way. Just he's so incredible. Um, it's interesting. You, you, you've brought me right into our next question, which is about working with the land and having ancestral ties to that land and the folklore and all of those things. Like when I was little, you know, those were the kinds of stories that I would read about. But, you know, I'm in America. So it was like it was that distant land, you know, and, and that sort of yearning for, you know, how do I have that connection with where I am? Um, tell me about that. Tell me about when you started to recognize the land that you live on beyond um, story and myth and start to see the, the sort of living consciousness that, that is there to work with. What was that like for you? I remember um, when I was when I was quite young, so I came into witchcraft and magic at quite a young age. I think I started practicing when I was about 12. At first, it was just a case of I found a book in a charity shop, a secondhand shop, um, which was all like this little spell book for teenagers. Mm -hmm. And I fell in love with it. And I'd do a lot of the little rituals and spells that were found in that. But then eventually after I found Chris and the Druids and Julie, 
um, my witchcraft evolved to be more focused on the land and the place that I'm from. And I remember um, I was surrounded by so much historical uh, landmarks, so much like ancient landmarks that were rooted in the land, like just down the road from me, um, a short drive to like almost the next village, there was this burial chamber in between us called Barclotia de Gaudes. And there's a whole folklore surrounding how Barclotia de Gaudes was even created. And it's this beautiful burial chamber, which is like, it looks like a hill, but the hill is hollow. So you can go inside and there's this structure of stones and it's absolutely ancient. It's about two or 3000 years old. And there were so many like little signposts on the beach nearby explaining like the history and the significance of this place and it's basically just as impressive i think as like stonehenge or anything like that and it's from the same kind of period and we had those kind of structures all over and i remember like growing up those structures were just part of the landscape we called it the teletubby house every time we passed (laughs) it because it looked like just a hill with like a hollowness inside it and when i finally like came to terms with the idea that oh my gosh there's more to my land than just the myths and stories it's something that i I can sink deeply into and connect to. That was one of the first places that I felt that, that I really felt that connection was going to these ancient places. So there's like Barclodia de Gaures, um, which has a whole folklore about this giantess. So the term Barclodia de Gaures means the giant, the giantess's apron full. And she, there's this story that a giant was walking with rocks all in her apron and then she tripped and the rocks created this structure and that's what created Barclodia de Gaures. Um, but in reality, it's a, like a burial chamber and a ritual site. And then we also have like Bryn and Treviknath and so much on the Isle of Anglesey um, of these beautiful structures. And I remember going as like a 14-year-old, 15-year-old, like walking to these places with like my friends or my loved ones and connecting to the stones and connecting to the land and feeling so aligned with something more than myself, more than um, what I could see there in the moment and thinking to myself, I think I had a bit of an existential crisis at like 14 because I realized like, oh my goodness, this structure has stood here for 2000 years and so many people, like people that might be my ancestors, people that might have traveled from far off into like um, Europe and such have traveled to this place to see these stones, to bury their loved ones, to celebrate with people, all sorts of events. And we don't really know what these structures were for. And there's a mystery to them. And I had this like, oh my gosh, this is intense. There's so much. But then at the same time, it was just a case of connecting to what was there locally. So I talk in the book about there was this one occasion that really stands out to me where I remember going to Julie's house. She was the typical like little village witch. She lived in a little cottage just on the outskirts of the village. And I had to walk, like even though it was a tiny village, I had to walk about 20 minutes to get to her house out of the village through these little like side roads and back roads. And then you'd get to her little cottage. And I sat down one day with her and it was near the winter solstice. And I remember saying to her, my little like 15 or 16 year old self, I remember going, oh, I really want to do this ritual like on the day of the solstice but my mum refuses to take me to the the supermarket to buy these herbs that I want and then she was like (laughs) Julie looked at me and went which herbs do you need and I was like oh I've got a list I showed her the list and she went 
you do realize every single one of those herbs grows along the coastal path. Go and pick them, go and dry them. You have them. You should not make excuses when you can work in the land rather than going to the supermarket. And I remember that at, like at like 15 or 16 really struck a chord within me. I was like, oh my gosh, I, I guess you're right. Like I don't have to like go to the supermarket. It might be easier, but I do have it right here at my fingertips. So I don't need to do this. And ever since then, a lot of my practice has been really rooted in like, what is around me? What is right here? And what is accessible to me here and now? Which spirits live here? What did my ancestors do in this land? Like, what did the people who used to live here do? And even today, like I've moved now to a, a city called Chester, which is just mm -hmm. on the outskirts of Wales. And um, even today I connect to what's going on here. So even though I see myself as first and foremost, a Welsh witch who works with like Welsh Celtic deities and such, I live now in a Roman walled city. So I make the effort to learn about the Roman deities that were worshipped here to make the effort to learn about the structures and the ancient sites that are here. And also to be rooted in the here and now as well, like what's going on now in this moment, in this place, what kind of movements are going on and just being part of the community as a whole. And that to me is all about working with the land. So I try and bring that into my practice. And I hope that I've echoed it in the book as well. Oh, I think you definitely have. Uh, the Just reading the book and not, you know, obviously I'm not part of the culture. So I don't have, I, ha I have the um, logical, like I, I know that I know the stories, you know, I've read the Mabinogi, like all of that. I have it in here, but I, it's, it's different. I'm sure when you grow up sort of steeped in the magic of that place and the beautiful thing about um the language i just you mentioned before the language like the language itself is so beautiful and poetic how do you feel that the welsh language has influenced your practice oh so the language to me has always been a connecting force so um i remember Growing up, and this might sound really cringy, and we have to like remember that this came from the mouth of like a, a grandfather. But I remember someone said to me once, we were talking when I was younger about things like quite big issues like racism and prejudice. And I remember there was this old man who lived in my village who said to me once, it doesn't matter what color your skin is, doesn't matter where you come from, if you speak Welsh, you're my friend. And I was like, <laughs> oh, that's a nice sentiment to have, I suppose. And I was like, that's the way we've always viewed it as well. Like, even though there are some problems nowadays and a lot of prejudice nowadays that I've spotted in like the Welsh communities, what I tend to notice is the only thing that seems to like um, bring us together is language and culture. Uh, in the land that I grew up in. And I loved that. I loved that feeling of like oneness, like we have something special. And growing up as well in a Welsh speaking community where everyone spoke the language, it was almost like um, our little like secret language because <laughs> my mum growing up, she dealt with a lot of like anxiety problems. And so we didn't go shopping like locally in, in Wales. We used to always get in the car and go miles and miles away because she did not want to talk to anyone. And it always <laughs> felt like, I always felt really special when I was walking around the cities in Cheshire or like in Lancashire or something. And we were speaking Welsh to each other as a family and people would like look at us and be like, oh, are they Polish people? What's going on there? <laughs> and it just like, it 
it always felt so special. But to me, it's always been this connecting thing that joins us together. And we have such a history as well within Wales of like the language being suppressed and uh, stamped out by oppressors and people who wish to see it eradicated. And so I think it's important to uplift it and to talk about it as much as possible and to try and keep it alive. And I went through a period when I was a teenager where I didn't like the language because we were pretty much forced to speak it in school. There was like every, almost every Welsh person who grows up in a rural, rural Welsh speaking area goes through a little bit of a rebellion where they're like, I'm not going to speak Welsh with my friends. I'm going to speak English like those people on television do. (laughs) (laughs) Our form of like rebelling against the powers that be. Because when you go to school, I remember I went to quite a strict school, which were like, um, you weren't allowed to speak English in the classrooms and um, you could have all sorts of like punishments for speaking. Speaking English like to the teachers and things and my dad as well like I remember when I'd come home from school if I started speaking English with my mum or my dad my dad would get like really angry and be like I don't speak that language I don't know what you're talking about like you need to speak our mm-hmm. language with us so I went through a bit of a rebellion but now I look back and I'm like the reason they were so passionate about just speaking the language is because of the history of like how it's more or less died in so many regions and so many people do not grow up with the privilege of knowing the language anymore and I know that a lot of Welsh people struggle with that sense of identity because they're like, um, I remember speaking to one person who said they didn't feel like they could claim the title of Welsh because they don't speak the language and I was like, but that's not your fault, you know, there's a history of why you don't speak the language Mm -hmm. and why it's not here Um, but yeah, I speak in the book about like the history of language itself and how it connects to our people and our land and also has like ties to all sorts of magical things. I think one of the comments I always get from people who are from outside Wales who talk to me is Welsh sounds like a magical language. It sounds like a a language that dragons would speak or something. And I'm like, you know what? Historically speaking, it pretty much (laughs) is because we have ties to like ancient Brythonic languages that go back to some of the oldest languages in Europe. And then we also have ties to like ceremonial magical usage of the language. We have all these traditions of poetry, which are deeply rooted in the language itself and have influenced the formation of the language and the way in which we speak it. And the poetry that was influential on the language was utilized by bards that belonged to royalty who could influence entire societies, entire communities, and entire like cultures in the areas. That's how powerful words were at one point in Welsh history. And I think that's a magic in and of itself. So I speak a lot about like the power of words and using spoken word within ritual and such, which I know some pagans don't like. So, uh, some pagans like don't really jive with the idea of like, oh, I, I don't really like, you know, like to use spoken word or incantation or rhyme within my uh, spell work, but I do because I feel like it's a tie to my culture and it's a tie back to the way in which our culture operates. So, I mean, in our national anthem, it says, Glad Beirth Achantorion, a land of bards and singers. We're literally like a land that hoists up the idea of the arts and words and language and poetry. And we have like nationalist Edvods, which are celebrations of art and poetry and <laughs> words and such. Um, and it's just such an integral part of the culture that I think it needs to be part of 
the magic, and it also has ties to the magical traditions of Wales. And, um, you know, we have such ancient poetry, ancient prose, and also we have charms and spells, and they all seem to follow this bardic tone and tradition, which utilizes the way in which we put words together and how that can be powerful. So yeah, that's kind of my connection to the language and how I see it as influential into my magical practice and spiritual practice as well. Words are very powerful things, I think. <laughs> oh, I would agree with you. And it's so interesting to hear you talk because I'm just like, I'm just like melting into all of your words. Um, we, in the, in our particular area of the States, we have a lot of people that um, we had sort of a, a diaspora from Engl- from Ireland, Scotland, Wales in this area. Most of the more English people are sort of more North, um, but especially in like the Carolinas and down into the Southern States, we have so much of that. Uh, the language of course is gone, but a lot of our accent stems from um, you know, these, these other cultures and, and we're sort of looks down on a lot for our accent because we sound like hill folk and, and very country people. Um, but, but that's sort of that remaining resonance that's coming from our ancestry. And when I hear you and we have that, you know, storyteller type thing, and we're a rural people for the most part. And so when I hear you talking, um, about, about your connection with the land and your connection with the language and your connection with your people. Like part of me is just like yearning for, for a connection like that, because my people were displaced whether through their own choice or not. Um, But we don't have a connection, native connection beyond a few generations with this land, you know, and the people who are native to this land have very different, well, no, I don't know. I would say very different types of practices. They are, but they're not. Um, but we're also, that's not for us because my people were absolutely horrible to the natives here. So what kind of advice would you have for people that are interested? It's a two part question. So I'm going to go with the first part first. So people that are interested in Welsh practices, but don't have that physical connection to the land and the culture, whether they may have a genetic connection or not. What, what, what is your, what are your thoughts on that topic? I, strangely enough, get asked this quite a lot lately, like how people from like across the sea who have some sort of ancestry can connect to it. And also like, do you need ancestry? Do you need like, you know, Mm -hmm. some kind of tie or can you just be drawn to it and appreciate it anyway, regardless? And is it like, I think one of the buzzwords that goes around nowadays is, is it an open practice or is it a closed Mm -hmm. practice? And um, I get asked that a lot, especially being on the TikTok side of things, because I make little TikTok videos. (laughs) And um, I get asked a lot from like people who are now becoming aware of the conversation surrounding like closed practices and cultural appropriation. They're like, I don't want to appropriate Welsh practices. Like, are we welcome? Are we allowed? And I think the first thing I always say to that is absolutely. (laughs) I think you're very much allowed into the culture and into the practices, especially because we were never like very gatekeepy about our culture, Mm -hmm. even though like we do have a history of, um, you know, people trying to smash the culture down and seeing us as lesser and such, we 
still were very open about sharing our culture no matter where we went in the world so though like there's a big conversation to be had about like colonization and the reason why the welsh like traveled and such what i really like talking about a lot is how when when the welsh did travel to like america canada australia or anywhere else in the world they brought their culture with them and they shared it with the people that they came across and they you know they shared their songs they shared their stories and then eventually that became a whole new folk tradition so it's almost like they were willing to share their culture so much so i don't see why i shouldn't be today <laughs> like or why anyone from wales shouldn't be today but um one of the things that i always say is to be respectful of the culture itself as well and seeing it as a living culture i talk a lot about um in a lot of my work online and such about how a lot of celtic traditions and practices and cultures have been now homogenized which i think is a bit of an issue like we talk a lot about celtic and not specifically about like which one which celtic culture right like <laughs> it's one thing <laughs> yeah and i think that's quite um so like to get on a little bit of a high horse for a second and Go like ahead, preach you're welcome. <laughs> it's like by squishing all the cultures together and creating mm -hmm. this one homogenized Celtic culture, it plays into that idea that is found in like really um, dangerous ideals and concepts within like white supremacy and stuff about like, oh, there's this white culture that exists and it's better and uh, like, you know, more uh, robust than other cultures. And I don't like that. So I like to instead focus on the smaller like cultural um, signifiers and such. So rather than Celtic, I won't say Celtic much in my work. I try to say Welsh or if I'm speaking about another culture, I'll say like Cornish, Welsh, Scottish, Irish, because though we are all Celtic and we're all joined together and related in some way, we are also very vastly different even to this day. And then another issue I come across a lot is the um, fairy taleization of the Celtic cultures. So it's this like notion that people look at the Celtic cultures as something of the past, as something that has been and gone. Like, you know, it's centuries ago. It's like ancient world, like Brave by Pixar, like <laughs> long, like redhead people running through the woods on their horses with like bows and arrows with will-o'-the-wisps around them and fairies flying around them and long like medieval corsets and such. And Is it not like that? Wait a minute. <laughs> Well, depends who you are. <laughs> but, um, it, it kind of it becomes a bit of a problem when like you you talk to some people who have this like love and um, appreciation for all things Celtic, but then the more you talk to them, you realize, oh my, they have like a completely like Game of Thrones style view of what it means to be Celtic. And I think that can like be almost like an erasure of the concept that we are still here. We're still living to this day. You know, there's still things going on within the Celtic nations that are relevant to the modern world. So like I was speaking to someone recently about the independence movements that are happening across like the uh, Celtic nations, how um, Scotland, you know, is still fighting quite strongly for independence. Northern Ireland is talking about reunification with the Republic of Ireland. Uh, Wales has an independence movement, the Anibaniaeth movement, um, and even Cornwall, even people from Cornwall. Like Cornwall, though um, it's technically classed as a part of England, they view themselves as very much their own place. They are a Celtic nation um, officially. And even there are whispers in Cornwall of the idea of Cornish independence from England. So it's almost like there are all these little political movements going on in the cultures today and all these little things about like you know how to 
raise our culture up from um, the subjugation that's faced in the past, how to bring the languages back to a place where it's good and like spoken freely. Like Wales is doing really well with our language because we're almost at a million speakers now and uh, quite a large percentage of the population speaks Welsh as opposed to like 20 years ago. But like there's still a lot of work in other Celtic nations to bring languages back and there's a lot of that going on. And I just hope that people who get into Celtic like movements when it comes to spirituality are also aware that it's a living culture, it's existing today, there are problems, there are things going on, and there are people living in those cultures today that are dealing with things that they like you know, want to happen. And a lot of times when people talk about Celtic stuff, they don't know about all that. They only know about like the Mabinogi and the mythology. And, um, and that's fine. I think it's great to have an interest in mythology, but it gets a bit scary and like almost feels like we're being erased when like people seem to think that we're some fantasy land that doesn't exist anymore and i think the the place where that becomes a problem is when people i claim the identity of being celtic as well because it's something that i've come across a lot where people over in america who have like ancestry and not just america i've seen it from like australia canada everywhere where like people who have welsh ancestry or Irish ancestry, they will quite outright say, I am Irish, I am Welsh. And I understand mm-hmm. the like complexity of like why that is. Like a lot of people are just literally searching for a sense of identity because they live on stolen land and they don't really feel like they can connect to the land they're on. And so it's easier to say, I'm Welsh or I'm Irish, uh, than to try and kind of be like, well, I have Welsh ancestry, but I currently live in like uh Anaheim and I have also ancestry from like this side of the world. Yeah. So I understand why like it's easier to kind of focus in and go, I'm Welsh, but it can get a bit problematic when uh, so recently there was a situation that I was brought into um, with a friend where there was this man who was like, I'm who was very much like proud of his Welsh identity and was saying, I'm Welsh, I'm Welsh online even though he'd never stepped foot in Wales and was not part of the culture. And usually I'm fine with that. I'm like, you know what? If you want to identify as Welsh, that's fine. But the reason this one stood out to me was because he would um, go onto the pages of people who live in like Wales or Ireland and um, who are like literally part of the culture today in the countries that still exist to this day, but who just happen to not be white. And he would be like, mm. oh, I'm more Welsh than you because I'm white. <laughs> and that's the right. culture of what it means to be Welsh. And I'm like, no, those people are living in that land and they are part of the culture every day. And that's what it means to me to be Welsh or Irish or Scottish. It's living in the culture, partaking in the culture and not anything to do with like ancestry or blood or DNA. And that's why I say as well that it doesn't really matter to have ancestry or DNA to partake in like the spiritual or magical aspects because it's just a culture. So if you partake in the culture, if you learn the language, if you learn about our history, our mythology, our literature, if you learn about who we are as a people, then you're almost inviting yourself into the culture by doing that and starting to live it. And that's, I think, the in, how to get in is to learn as much as you can. But I know it can be difficult to connect to like the ideas of, because a lot of what we do spiritually is about connecting to the land, to the landscape itself. And we work in a very like animistic approach to the land and the spirits of the land. And that can be, I'm sure, very difficult if like you live on a land where 
perhaps the spirits there are connected to a culture that is not your own and culture that was pushed aside in favor of the people that uh, came over and were your ancestors. And I always struggle with this one because my advice is always just go out and speak to the land and get to know the land. But it is kind of a complex topic, I'm sure. Like, how do you do that in a respectful manner without treading on toes of people who have been displaced as well? Yes. And that's, that kind of leads us to the second part of my question. Um, as someone who lives, you know, on stolen land and my ancestors were part of that, part of that thievery. Um, although some of them were here, some of them came later, regardless, same, same thing. Um, having a connection to the land that you're on, that you're living on, that you're eating from, that, you know, you're breathing the air from every day, you know, is not um, it's not specific to one culture or one one people, you know. Every and and the nations that lived here previously, you know, roamed around and changed. There were so many nations. You think Native American, and it's the same thing as what they do with Celtic. It's not one, you know, monolith. It's several different nations with very different cultures and very different traditions and different languages, and you know. Um, conflicts between them and alliances between different different cultures so there's not one and you know that they changed hands particularly the space where i am um it wasn't just one people for for thousands of years it was it changed hands you know as one nation would take over um another so it's a complex topic it's it there's layers and layers of of spirits and ancestors you know that are tied to the land and, you know, my family has been here for, you know, going back to the revolution. So that's a few generations, but, you know, very, very new. Um, how do you, what advice do you have for people that are, you know, sort of displaced from their ancestral land to connect with the land that they're on um, in a respectful way? I know for me, I just go talk to the spirits of the land because they were here before any people, you know. And they seem to be, um, they seem to be receptive to that. And, you know, uh, hopefully that's not just in my mind, um, but they're receptive if you approach with honor and respect um, and recognize, you know, like you can't pretend that what has happened here hasn't happened, um, but you can try to repair those relationships. What, what would your advice be for, for displaced people um, in connecting with the land they're on? So that would definitely be my first point of call is to just connect with the land itself is to go and speak to the land, speak to the trees, speak to the plants, get to know the plants and trees that grow in the region, get to know the flora, the fauna, the the very ecology of the land that you live on, as well as like, you know, the geology and like, learn about like what rock structures grow, what plants grow, learning about these things and getting to know the land on quite an intimate level and then going out into the land after you've learned it as well. It's not just all books, like very much like mm -hmm. learn about it in books, then go out and experience it, go find these things, go learn about them and understanding that, you know, the land is very much alive and teeming with life, or at least within my beliefs, it is <laughs> the land is full of spirit and everything is very much its own spirit and its own, like has its own identity. And so I would very much just say, go out and first and foremost, 
connect with the trees, connect with the rivers, the lakes, the the shorelines, connect with the earth itself and everything around you in a respectful manner. You know, treat them as if you're, you know, speaking to a um, very elderly grandparent who you want to treat with the utmost respect and go forward in that manner and build those connections. But then one thing that I love to talk about lately is, um, especially because, as I said, I get this question quite a lot, like from, because a lot of my audience nowadays are in America and they talk a lot about like, you know, how do I connect? Because I'm from, like my ancestry is from Wales, but now I live like here. I always say like, if you have ancestry from Wales uh, or any of the Celtic nations or anywhere in Europe, really, um, and they have been in that area that you're living in for quite a long time, then it's very likely there's also some folklore in your region from those people. There are beliefs mm-hmm. and folk practices in that region as well. So I've been reading a lot lately about like Appalachian folklore and Appalachian mm-hmm. folk beliefs. And it's always quite like, I don't know why it's shocking, but it is shocking when I see things and I'm like, oh, that's the same. That's this. That's what we, yeah. <laughs> that's what we do. And there are little like parallels and synchronicities. Mm-hmm. Like um, I remember reading about the the Tommy knockers or the knockers of the mines, mm-hmm. the little goblins that live in the mines. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, we have Cobbler Nye, who are little mine goblins that live in the mines here. In Cornwall, they have the knockers. And then we also have um, a term in Wales, in Welsh, called knockers, which is like the, the Welsh version of knockers. And so it's really interesting to like read those folklores about like these mining spirits that were so associated with one of the biggest trades that existed in this area and how when they went over to the Appalachian region like and that was also one of the main like um, trades that was going on was going to work in the mines and such they also had these spirits and they also had the folklore surrounding them so it's almost like really interesting to me to find those connections between the legends and the folklore of the land and how like they intertwine with one another and it's almost like an echo of a folk belief that has been carried over the sea and brought to this new place and there's a lot to be said about like is that okay but at the same time if they are talking about these things they believe that these things existed in the land and so they're there now the spirit is there and alive and it's something that we can also connect to if we are on like faraway lands is understanding that you know though your ancestors are from thousands of miles away across the sea, they were also here and they were also in this place that you are in now. And they brought their folklore, they brought their beliefs, they brought their traditions and practices with them. And so find as much as possible from that kind of place, from that uh, area of study, like find as much as you can. And it'll tell you a lot about like what your ancestors did, what the people of that area did and how they interacted with the landscape when they arrived. And I think that can glean a lot of information on how one can connect to the land as well. You know, it's interesting that you were um, talking about um, people bringing their, um, their folklore and their, um, their stories and their spirits with them as, as they came over. And um, it's interesting to me, I'm, I'm curious. So I would have to like have someone from, from, you know, your area come over here and then compare, but it's interesting because I wonder if those are, sort of just if they're recognizing um, spirits that are a certain type of spirit and then labeling it with a name that's familiar to them. Like they recognize a resonant between this type of spirit is the same as this type of spirit over there. 
and not necessarily bringing their own spirits like they're tr- putting them in a case and bringing them over like American gods. But but like they they recognize a resonance between this type of spirit. It reminds me of like when the Romans came up and then they would just call things Mercury that, you know, they had a resonance. They had a similar energetic resonance to particular deities in that area. But it's not Mercury, you know, it's but it's similar. What are your thoughts on that? <laughs> Or do you think that they're actually bringing the spirits over with them? I guess it could be both. It doesn't yeah, have to I be one. I think it's it's a bit of both. I think it's a mixture because um, as like somebody who talks a lot about fairies in my work, <laughs> I talk a lot about like the fae and fairies because that is like a popular topic, but also because it's so like um, an integral part of my practice because fairy faith and fairy folklore in this area that I'm in was such a huge thing for so, so many thousands of years. And so like, I like to speak a lot about fairies and talking about like things like goblins and uh, those kind of strange, almost eldritch creatures that live in the forest and who are otherworldly in nature. I do tend to think that a lot of them is a case of perhaps the people moved over heard about a spirit or saw and experienced a spirit that was very similar to something that, you know, their parents and grandparents talked about when they were at home and they just made that connection. Because what I always find interesting is there's always a variation in some way mm. of like how they are perceived. So the going back to the knockers, the idea of these like goblin mi- in the mines, goblin like creatures in the mines in Welsh folklore, the goblins, the Coblenai, they are completely benevolent. They are good. They are always good. They will always lead you to good things, to good ores and good minerals and rocks and such. And then they are also like a good sign. If you can hear the 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 Coblenai working away in the mines, it's a sign. There is good ore here. And so long as we leave offerings for them, and there's a lot of cultural traditions, such as like in Cornwall, they would eat the Cornish pasty and they would give the crust of the Cornish pasty as an offering to the Coblenai. And there's like similar traditions then in other mines in America like that. But um, I I always found it interesting that there are also some like almost horror stories surrounding these goblin-like creatures coming from like Appalachia and stuff where I've heard that they're almost like terrifying in some ways. And it's like, oh, so that's like a strange like uh, variation in the folklore there that over here, it was very much like, these are good things. We give them offerings. It means that they're going to lead us to like riches and abundance. And then over there, it's almost like a mixture. Some of them are good. Some of them are bad. Some of them we need to stay away from. And they're an omen of like bad things happening. So it does tell me that there's like, there's almost like a regional identity that is different to what, people were perceiving over here. So there's definitely, I think, a case of some of the spirits were just local regional spirits that people gave a name to because it's like, oh, these are similar to what we Mm -hmm. experienced back home. And now they're here as well. But then in other cases, I do think that because there's a lot of folklore surrounding like, oh, this family had a a bogget or a or a bubba, yeah. like a brownie or something that they brought over with them. Um, or a spirit that is like, <laughs> there's a slightly darker tales where it's like this family was cursed with this like poltergeist who, hi- who haunts them constantly and even moving across the sea didn't stop the spirits from mm-hmm. following them and such. So I think it's a mixture. I think it's like a mixture of t- 
almost three things like the the family ancestral ties to certain spirits being brought over and then also because the people were moving over maybe some spirits followed over but also like the connection and correlation between new spirits that people were encountering and i do wonder as well if there's a little bit of like oh the the native people who lived on this land told us about this type of spirit and that reminds mm-hmm. us of this so it must be that and almost like this uh like mixture going on um of different folk laws and traditions because i think from what i've read that had happened as well where like almost some folklores and beliefs from certain tribes that lived in certain areas did also mix with the people who ended up taking over the land as well so i think it's a mixture of all those things building up into this huge simmering cauldron (laughs) and then culminating into that and that's that's sort of exactly what it feels like too and we're such a blended i know i'm talking about america a lot and your book's about what what am i doing (laughs) um you know it's such a um a blended um, culture over here. It almost, we have so much culture that we have no culture. You know, it's so, uh, so we have these little pockets of culture that almost always came from elsewhere, you know, and I think we're just, we're still such a baby um, country, you know, and I think we're just starting to really want to develop because so much of coming to America was like, leave everything behind, you know, we're going to be this one people, we're going to be American, and that's going to be the thing that we are. But we had no idea of what does that even mean, you know? And I don't think we appreciated the importance of culture and community. You know, that's, that's something that I feel is missing. And I feel that developing a witchcraft culture um, that we can all, you know, even if it's not the same culture for everyone, of course, but that we can all resonate and we can all have community together with um, is, is one of my my goals over here at, at, in the work that I'm doing. So I think it's absolutely beautiful um, that you have that connection with the land, connection with the language, with the people, with your ancestry from that same place, because we can learn so much from how that expresses in your in your community and your connections with each other and your connections with the, with the spirits and the land as well. Um, yeah. So I just went on a tie right there. Sorry about that. Um, so tell me, have you got, are there, are there more, um, are there more books in the works from you? Oh, definitely. Or in your mind. <laughs> um, there's a lot of things kind of culminating at the minute. I've got a lot of ideas and it's just figuring out which one wants to come to life first, because I tend to follow a very, um, magical system of like following the awen as i say (laughs) and Mm -hmm. uh, the awen is like the force of divine inspiration and it's like a huge cultural thing in wales to like pull the awen pull that deep divine inspiration from the other world into you and so i always like it's it's not a very practical method of working but (laughs) um i do tend to instead of like oh i'm going to work on this and i'm only going to do that for the next four months i tend to just go wherever that intuition and awen is leading me and at the minute that means that i'm working on three different things at once and so it's like okay can i please just focus on one thing and like get that done um but yes i have plans i mean when i was writing this book welsh witchcraft i wrote it with the intention of this being a very introductory book a very kind of like you know, this is your doorway into, if you've never heard of Welsh witchcraft, if you've never heard of the magical traditions and cultures of Wales, this is a little gateway into it so that you can kind of get your first footing and find your way around it. And um, I I remember when I was writing it, I created these exercises and such. And I was writing with the intention of 
some people who have never even heard of witchcraft in general in a modern sense will also pick this book up and that came from uh before i started like announcing that the book was coming i remember i started gaining like a strange amount of followers on certain social media sites because i was talking about welsh like cultural traditions and things and people were really interested in it but i was getting peoples from all sorts of walks of life i was getting witches and pagans who were really like oh my gosh yes this is my ancestry or this is something that i'm really interested in intrigued by I need to learn more but I was also getting just Welsh people who wanted to know more about their own culture who had no ties to witchcraft or paganism in a sense but wanted to know more about the history of that kind of stuff going on because it is really interesting and we're not really taught about the magical side of our culture in like school and such I don't remember ever learning about like the folk magical traditions or things like that we kind of stopped at the mythology we did the literature the mabinoki and then we moved on <laughs> and i i really like wanted to try and push those aspects the folklore and the folk magic and a lot of people were really receptive to it so i remember when i was writing it i was like okay i need to keep in mind that not everyone will be a witch or a magician or an occultist when they are re- reading this book so it needs to act almost like very introductory and it acts as almost like an introduction to welsh witchcraft but also witchcraft in general and i'm hoping that as i progress now and i write more books that i can go deeper like much deeper into like things that i i i've been exploring in my own practice and things that i want to talk about with the world as well so yeah i i really hope there's going to be more books <laughs> uh, you know and i have to say that even for experienced practitioners this is a beautiful uh a beautiful look at Welsh witchcraft and witchcraft in general, I like your perspective on, you know, what is a witch? What, what are we doing here? Why do we do this? Um, so I enjoy, I enjoyed it even not as a beginner. So I think it's, I, I think it has value for absolutely everyone. So I don't want people to think, Oh, it's just a beginner book. It's not <laughs> go, go get it. Um, what do you have? So, so this is a question that I like to ask people. Um, what is the future project and it doesn't have to be in the works. It doesn't have to be, you know, it could be 20 years down the road. What is your big thing that you are most excited about doing, hopefully one day? It could be already in the works, but what's the big thing that you want to do? So I really want to write um, quite a lot of books about different things. But specifically, I, I would love to write something that is a working, almost manual into crafting like magic in a Welsh sense. So almost like a huge tome of spells, charms, rituals, rites that are Welsh in nature, a mixture of, you know, like modern practices that have been created by me and other Welsh witches that I've met, and also like how they tie into the historical magic. So though in this book, I do talk about the practical aspects of Welsh witchery, I just want to go deeper and I want to like really dig deep into those traditions and practices and create almost like a, a go-to guide of like, oh, you want to craft magic and you want to try and focus it in this kind of Celtic Welsh essence, you can go to this book. And I struggle with that because I don't, I, I don't know if it's reflective in the book, but in the book that I've already written, but I struggle with writing exercises and spells because I'm a very experiential person. Like I like to experience and do. So when I'm writing it, I'm like, what did I do again? <laughs> I can't remember <laughs> now. How did it feel? What did, what did I do? And so like, that's something that I really want to do, but it's scary in my eyes. Um, and I, I just don't know <laughs> if, if it's going Please to happen. Please do it. <laughs> yeah, Please do I it. <laughs> 
And oh, good. Yeah. The other one that I really want to write that's like really like picking at my brain at the minute is um, a guide to like the fairy faith of Wales, the fairy folklore and beliefs of Wales, because it's a really interesting area of folklore and folk tradition in Wales, but it's such a misunderstood area as well, because it's full of like, there's Victorian influence, which added a lot of twee and like um, romanticism to it. Uh, And then there's also like misunderstandings from fusing, like, I think because we're a Celtic nation and we are a Celtic people, people mix us up with other Celtic nations, such as like, I think the fairy faith that people might know most about is probably the Irish fairy faith because it's been spoken about more in like modern paganism. And I struggle sometimes because people will bring beliefs that they have from like what they read in like books on Irish fairies and they'll bring them into Welsh fairies and they'll think it's the same. And it's like really hard to like unpack that and be like, no, we are both Celtic, but we have our own unique like perspective of these things. And there's contradictions and variations and differences. And that's true, not just between like Ireland and Wales, but also within different regions in Wales and Ireland themselves. Like, you know, the beliefs surrounding what like this type of fairy is in like the northern part of Wales might be different to the south or might be different to the mid part and it's the same in Ireland as well and so I really want to write a book that's a deep dive into the fairies of Wales as well as like a working manual for like should we and can we and how would we work with these spirits as witches as practitioners and how would that go about and did it happen historically and such so that's another one that I really want to but again it's very kind of daunting and scary so yeah those are two projects that I'm kind of like okay this will happen one day I just need to actually get over my fear of getting it right (laughs) oh I hope that you do especially the the book on fairies because there's so much misconceptions Mm -hmm. um just in general and I would love I would love to hear specifics from from those different areas as well. Yeah. Yay. Thank you. Um, so it's been absolutely wonderful chatting with you. I have so enjoyed having you on the show. And I do hope you come back, you know, when your next book is ready to come out, please come back. Um, where can our listeners find you? So I'm I'm available like pretty much everywhere on social media. You can find me on TikTok where I make these really flamboyant over the top videos about folklore and magic. Um, they're a bit wild and crazy. Uh, on YouTube, you find me more like toned down. I, I sit and I talk about things in depth on YouTube, whereas on TikTok, it's very kind of theatrical and <laughs> over the top. Um, and then I also have like Instagram, Facebook, and I'm at Mara Starling on all of them. I also have a Patreon and my Patreon is is still in the works, still kind of figuring it out because it's new to me. But my patrons get access to exclusive content that nobody else does. They get access to things like Discord servers and things like that. Um, And also, as we move into April, I will also be um, releasing my own podcast, the Welsh Witch Podcast. And um, that podcast will be like uploaded to my Patreon before anywhere else, as well as like full unedited versions versus like the edited version that I put out. So it's it's like a good time to join because I, I think I'm starting to get the hang of it now. And they do get access to like an exclusive video lesson every month and such. So yeah, if you want to support me and help me in all that I, that I do, that's the place to go. So Patreon and then also Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, TikTok, everywhere. <laughs> Wonderful. That's so exciting. And I'm going to, we're going to make sure and put um, links to all of your, all of your things in the show notes. And um, yeah, I think that, I think that's the show. Uh, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I've loved talking with you. Please come back again, everyone. Uh, Mara Starling, 
who is the author of Welsh Wishcraft, A Guide to the Spirits, Lore, and Magic of Wales. I hope you all enjoyed it as much as I did. And blessed be, everyone. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you all so much for listening, and don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe through your favorite podcast provider. It helps us get our podcast in front of more listeners just like you. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can leave us a voicemail by clicking the link in the description of this episode, and you can always find us on Facebook and Instagram by searching for Crossroads and Cauldrons Podcast. Mm-hmm.